Hi there, nerdlings. This is Ash. And this is Matt. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. Tonight's episode deals with the murders of 11 women over the course of a year, beginning in spring of 1988, at the hands of a still-unsolved serial killer. This episode does contain graphic discussion of violence that was perpetrated against women, which may trigger some of our listeners. If that's the case, we completely understand that this may not be an episode for you, and we'd love for you to come back and join us for another episode. And now, nerdlings, let's grab our flashlights and join us as we venture down into the dark world of true crime together. There are sinister creatures who roam the highways of the United States. They are predators who wait in the shadows until they see the perfect moment to pounce on an unsuspecting victim. Some are active in hunting victims for decades until they are finally caught. And yet, there are others who are far more cunning. They elude law enforcement time and time again, forever remaining in the shadows, never being brought to justice. So today, we discuss one of these monsters who has never been apprehended. The new Bedford Highway serial killer is still out there, driving the highways looking for his next victim. Having left 11 families bereft of their beloved daughters in a small New England city back in the 1980s. And with that, nerdlings, it's time to get behind that old wheel once again and set our high beams on for the city of New Bedford, Massachusetts. New Bedford is a city located in Bristol County, Massachusetts, that holds the nickname the Whaling City, as it was once one of the world's most important whaling ports in the 19th century. It is located in the south coast of Massachusetts and as of the 2010 census had a population of 95,072, which makes it the sixth largest city in Mass. New Bedford was also an inspiration to American author Herman Melville. With the city's deep roots in the whaling industry, it would become the backdrop to his classic novel Moby Dick. While in its past, New Bedford was known for its whaling history and quaint New England charm, In recent years, it has also become synonymous with a series of unsolved murders that would begin in April of 1988 and would end in September of 1988. In total, 11 women would lose their lives during that five-month span. 11 families would lose their daughters, their mothers, their sisters, and their friends. The 11 women would fall victim to a killer known only as the New Bedford Highway Killer an unsolved serial killer who remains at large to this day. At the time of the murders, this case would be considered the largest murder case in the state of Massachusetts since the Boston Strangler, who also murdered 11 women between the years of 1962 and 1964. Our case begins on July 3rd of 1988 with Sandy Leonard, a motorist who had been traveling down that stretch of the northbound Route 140 highway of what is now referred to as I-95. Sandy was traveling with her dog along I-95 when she stopped her car along the shoulder of the highway in Freetown, Massachusetts, in order to take her dog Skeeter for a quick walk. As she was walking down the slope of grass that led away from the highway, a black blotch a few yards ahead caught her attention. Initially, she assumed it was nothing until she spotted a flash of white and within a few minutes, she realized that she was looking at the decomposing skeletal remains of a human. It would be with Sandy and her dog Skeeter's discovery that day on July 3rd that Massachusetts would become the known hunting ground of a serial killer, who still remains at large over 30 years later. 
State Police Trooper William Delaney was the first investigator to be involved with the case. It was July 3, 1988, when he received a call that a body had been found on the northbound highway in Freetown, Massachusetts. Delaney and his team were sent out to investigate the gruesome discovery, and when they arrived at the scene, they would find the badly decomposed body of a young woman with no apparent identification on her persons, or near where her body lay. In an interview with State Trooper Delaney from a May 21, 1989 Boston Globe article, he was quoted as stating, quote, You try to find out the identity on it before you can do any investigation, unquote. It would take Trooper Delaney most of the summer of 1988 to learn the true identity of the Jane Doe found murdered along that stretch of highway. During this time, a pattern began to emerge for the trooper, as well as other investigators involved with the case. That pattern would come with the realization that Massachusetts was dealing with an unknown serial killer who strangled his female victims. While investigators tried desperately to find the identity of the unknown murder victim, more women's bodies would begin to be uncovered. On July 30, 1988, yet another woman's remains would be found alongside I-95. A driver pulled off the highway onto the westbound exit 16 in Dartmouth, Mass. The man pulled off the side of the road in order to relieve himself. He walked towards the woods and roughly 16 feet into the wooded area along that stretch of highway, he would find the remains of a nude woman left discarded off the eastbound lanes of I-95. The woman's body was badly decomposed, much like the previous woman discovered just a few weeks before along that same stretch of highway. No items of identification were found with her remains either. She too would be unknown to investigators for several months. For a few months, it seemed that the two women's murders were unrelated. Just a coincidence that occurred, but nothing more. Just two women unknown and unidentified found murdered along Interstate 95. Both left naked, battered, murdered, and discovered only by the pure chance of drivers pulling off the road and spotting their remains. That was until November 8th of 1988, when a highway crew was cleaning alongside the eastbound side of Interstate 95. The highway crew found themselves near the Reed Road ramp when they discovered the remains of yet another woman left nude and decomposing alongside the highway. Investigators were yet again brought to the highway, but the crime scene was slightly different than the two previous murders. This time, the killer left signs of the woman's identity scattered around the remains of her lifeless body. He left the woman's jewelry and what appeared to be her clothes behind, staging her body but leaving a clue as to her identity as if to taunt investigators with how he so easily could give and take the name of who this woman had been in life. Investigators initially assumed that the clothing and jewelry belonged to the Jane Doe that they had just discovered. This would lead to confusion within the case for a short period of time as they were able to identify that the clothing belonged to a woman named Nancy Paeva, a 36-year-old mother of two teen daughters, who had been missing from New Bedford since early July. The true identity of the Jane Doe found on November 8th would be determined a few weeks later, when an anonymous suggestion was called into the police tip line in December of 1988. The tipster notified police that the most recent Jane Doe found may be the body of former Rhode Island inmate named Deborah DeMello. Based on the tip, 
police reached out to forensic dentist Stanley Schwartz, who was based out of Massachusetts Tufts University. Schwartz was able to positively match the dental records of the Jane Doe found alongside Interstate 95 in November to that of Deborah DeMello, the former Rhode Island inmate. That match would begin to unravel the identities of all three women who had been found over that summer and fall of 1988. While authorities were in the process of identifying Deborah DeMello as the third victim of the New Bedford Highway killer, yet another woman's body was about to be discovered in tandem with positive identifications of the initial two victims of the New Bedford serial killer. Investigators now had a lead and a clear understanding that these murders were all related and the work of a yet unknown serial killer. They had a list of currently missing women, all from the New Bedford area, and all of these women shared similarities. The women were all small-statured, at roughly around five feet or so. They all had dark hair, and they all had been known to have struggled with drug addictions, or been involved with a sex worker trade in the red-light district of New Bedford. All women had been left without any identification, and all women had been strangled by their killer. With the positive identification of Deborah DeMello, investigators soon realized that the clothing that belonged to Nancy Paeva, but found with the body of Deborah DeMello, meant that Nancy too was a victim of the New Bedford Highway killer. It was at this time that they were able to identify that the second Jane Doe they had discovered back on July 30th was actually the remains of 36-year-old Nancy Paeva, who had been missing since July 7th of 1988. A few weeks after, investigators were able to positively identify Nancy Paeva. The identity of the first Jane Doe would also be discovered. The first Jane Doe, found on July 3rd of 1988 by a woman walking her dog, was that of 30-year-old Deborah Medeiros, who had last been seen in New Bedford on May 27th of 1988. Investigators now knew that they were looking for several missing young women, and so they brought in cadaver dogs to begin searching for more missing women's remains. The dogs would lead investigators to the remains of the remaining victims of the New Bedford Highway Killer during the month of December of 1988 and into the spring of 1989. On November 29th of 1988, the body of 25-year-old Don Mendez would be discovered off the highway of I-95. She had last been seen in New Bedford, Weld Square, on September 4th of 1988. Only two days later, on December 1st of 1988, the badly decomposed body of Deborah Lynn McConnell, aged 25, was also discovered off that stretch of highway. She had been missing from New Bedford since May of 1988. One week later, on December 10th, Rochelle Clifford Dapurala, age 28, who had last been seen in April of 1988, would be found along Reed Road, which was only two miles away from Interstate 95. The investigation was halted for a few months due to the rough New England winter, but it would resume once spring thaw had begun in late March of 1989. On March 28 of 1989, the body of 29-year-old missing mother Robin Rhodes was discovered along Route 140 off of I-95. She had been missing since March or April of 1988. Only two days later, the body of Mary Rose Santos, aged 26, was discovered along Route 88 off the highway of I-95. She had been missing since July 16th of 1988. 
April 24th of 1989 would mark the ninth and final female remains. They belonged to that of 24-year-old Sandra Patello, discovered along the highway of I-95 in New Bedford, Massachusetts. We are now going to discuss just who each of the victims of the New Bedford Highway Killer were when they were alive, what events in their lives led to them being in the red light district of New Bedford in the spring and summer of 1988, and the two other missing women whose bodies have never been found, but both are thought to also be victims of the New Bedford Highway Killer. Marilyn Roberts was only 34 years old when she was last seen in New Bedford sometime in June of 1988. Marilyn was the daughter of a retired police officer, Robert Cardoza. The Cardoza family has had their misfortune of losing both their children now, as their son, Marilyn's brother, passed away in recent years from cancer. They have never been able to have closure around Marilyn's death, as her remains have never been found. In a 2007 Berkshire Eagle article, Robert Cardoza stated that, quote, My daughter is still out there. She's not just another drug addict. We have good memories of her, too. Unquote. The Cardoza family has suffered through the worst thing to happen to a parent. They have seen both their children pass before their time. Just like the Cardozas, another family, that of the Monteros, still grieve the disappearance of their daughter whose body has also never been found. Christine Montiero was only 19 years old when she disappeared. She was last seen in New Bedford around late May of 1988. Like the other victims, Christine Montiero suffered from drug addiction issues. She was also thought to have been involved in the sex worker trade as well. After her disappearance, her brothers and sisters shared stories of just who Christine was in life. They described her as fun-loving, enjoying swimming, picnics, and she loved to dance to rhythm and blues music. She was the mother of a three-year-old boy and had moved out of her family's home when she was only 17 years old. Soon after, her mother, Mrs. Montiero, began to notice track marks on Christine's arms signaling to her family that Christine had begun to fall heavily into drug use. Mrs. Montiero decided it was time to take action and address her daughter's drug addiction after she learned that Christine was becoming involved in sex work in order to pay for her heroin addiction. In an interview with the AP News, Mrs. Montiero was quoted as stating, quote, I was very bold. I barged right in on her apartment one time when a few guys were there and kicked the bed, rolled over the mattress and started throwing pillows, but it still didn't help. Unquote. No matter how hard Christine's family fought to keep her out of the world of drugs and sex work, 19-year-old Christine kept finding herself held hostage by her struggle with her addiction. It would lead her into the red light district of New Bedford and into the sights of the New Bedford Highway Killer one night in late May of 1988. Christine was not alone in her addiction. She also happened to be close friends with one of the other victims of the New Bedford Highway Killer, 25-year-old Sandra Patello. Christine and Sandra had grown up together in New Bedford. Sandra Patello's sister described the two women's friendship as, quote, they shared clothes together, went dancing together, and shot up together, unquote. Sandra's body was the last discovered body of the New Bedford Highway Killer. Christine still remains missing to this day. Christine's son is now 32 years old. He grew up without his mother due to losing her to a real-life monster three decades ago. Robin Rhodes was only 29 years old when she lost her life to the New Bedford Highway Killer. Robin was the mother of a seven-year-old boy. She was reported as missing on July 28th of 1988, when her mother called the police after learning about the recent discovery of a potential serial killer in the area. Her mother, Jean Arsenault, notified the police that she hadn't seen Robin since around April of 1988. 
Like the other victims, Robin also suffered from a drug addiction and was thought to be engaging in sex work as a means of paying for her drug addiction, working out of her home as well as out of the bars in the New Bedford Red Light District. Robin's mother, Jean, initially had assumed that Robin was finally getting help for her ongoing drug addiction and assumed that Robin seeking treatment was why she hadn't heard from her in several months. It was with the announcements of the recent rash of murders of young women that Jean became concerned that Robin had somehow become one of the victims of this unknown serial killer. Jean's intuition was unfortunately correct, and Robin's body would be discovered on March 28th of 1989. She never got the chance to try and overcome her addiction as her mother had hoped she would. Rochelle Clifford Dapurala was a 28-year-old mother who was last seen in New Bedford in late April of 1988. Rochelle had just moved to the city of New Bedford from the town of Falmouth, Massachusetts in April of 1988. She had only lived in the city a few weeks before she had been abducted and subsequently murdered. In an interview with the Boston Globe, Rochelle's mother Diane Clifford stated, quote, She was addicted to drugs and because of it could not take care of herself. She was not strong enough to say no to drugs, unquote. The last time Diane was able to speak with her daughter Rochelle was in April of 1988, when Rochelle called her from a Quincy detoxification center to let her know that she would be leaving the center despite a court order that Clifford had obtained in order to send Rochelle there to receive treatment. Due to Rochelle's struggle with drug addiction, her mother Diane didn't initially file a missing persons report for her daughter, it wasn't unusual that Diane would disappear for a bit of time and then come back. Her mother stated that, quote, I just felt she got caught up with someone and felt helpless. I thought she gave in to the drugs. I don't think Rochelle had any idea what was going to happen to her. I think she would have called me or come home. I felt she was somewhere, just somewhere, but not that anything like that had happened to her, unquote. Diane called the New Bedford police expecting that they would pick Rochelle up for violating the court order, but that never happened. By June, Rochelle had still not returned home. By October 31st, which would have been her son's 10th birthday, Rochelle was still missing. On December 10th, her body was found and her family was able to identify her remains. Diane stated, quote, I don't want my daughter's name slandered anymore. I guess in my mind, I can't imagine her being on the street. That's it. It's that simple. Unquote. 25-year-old Deborah Lynn McConnell had last been seen in New Bedford around May of 1988. She was initially from Newport, Rhode Island, and was the sixth victim of the New Bedford Highway Killer. Like many of the other victims of the New Bedford serial killer, Deborah was a mother of a 10-year-old girl. She also had a husband who lived in Newport, Rhode Island. At the time of her abduction and murder, Deborah was living as a person without housing and had been staying on the streets of New Bedford. She too struggled with drug addiction issues. She had befriended Nancy Paeva during her time living on the streets of New Bedford. Nancy was the second victim of the New Bedford Highway Killer. It was thought that Deborah had been murdered sometime in March of 1988, making her one of the earlier victims of the New Bedford Killer. Due to Deborah's housing situation and not being in regular touch with her family, it did take longer for Deborah's remains to be identified. A few months after her disappearance, her father came forward to report that he had not seen Deborah in several months. It was at this time that it became clear that she too was a victim of the unknown serial killer stalking the streets of New Bedford. Deborah Medeiros was a 30-year-old woman who was last seen in New Bedford on May 27, 1988. She was the first victim but was not identified until December of 1988 due to none of her identification or her clothes being found with her remains. Deborah was originally from Fall River, Massachusetts and she occasionally stayed in the New Bedford area. 
Like the other victims of the New Bedford serial killer, Deborah found herself in Weld Square in New Bedford's red light district. She too suffered from a drug addiction. Deborah was acquainted with Don Mendez, one of the other victims of New Bedford serial killer. Deborah's mother, Olivia, reported her missing to the Fall River Police on June 23rd, which was about one month after she had last seen her. Deborah had phoned her mother in May of 1988 due to having had a fight with her boyfriend that night. Deborah had decided to leave the house during the night after the fight, and this phone call was the last time that Olivia Medeiros heard from her daughter. Olivia had thought that Deborah had rid herself of her drug addiction after having served two years in a state prison four years previously. After she had been released from prison, Deborah had taken several jobs in area factories and seemed to have put her life back together. At some point during the four years since her incarceration, Deborah must have lost her, her battles with drug addiction. Deborah's family described her as happy-go-lucky, and she loved to read books. Nancy Paeva was only 36 years old when she was last seen in New Bedford on July 7th of 1988. It would be less than one month later when her body would be discovered lying alongside I-95. Nancy was the mother of two teenage daughters. Nancy found her way into drug addiction by way of her then-boyfriend. He had been an ex-convict who frequently used heroin and introduced Nancy to the drug. Nancy was a divorcee and lived with her boyfriend for roughly two years before her murder. Her boyfriend would frequently beat Nancy to the point where her two daughters would often have to beg him to stop. One of Nancy's neighbors reported that she would hear Nancy's boyfriend screaming at her late into the night. One neighbor reported that, quote, she knew what she had to do. She would tell me she was afraid of him, unquote. Nancy had worked hard her entire life. Before drugs had entered her life, she had been a stellar student. She was a high school graduate and had gone to junior college. She also worked several jobs, often at the same time, to support her family. She was a key punch operator, a video store manager, and a night supervisor at a nursing home. Her sister, Judy DeSantos, was quoted as stating, quote, Right up until the end, she tried, unquote. In 1987, Nancy chose to enter a rehab program to try and get her life back on track, knowing she needed help to overcome her addiction and find the life she knew she wanted. Unfortunately, her then-boyfriend convinced Nancy to leave the rehab program and return home. Her neighbor last saw her standing on County Street on the night of July 7th. It was the night that Nancy would be abducted and subsequently murdered. Nancy had been walking in the rain as her neighbor was driving past. Her neighbor was quoted in an interview from the Boston Globe as stating, quote, I stopped and asked if she wanted a ride. She didn't say anything. She just stood there like she didn't know who I was. I begged her. I held up traffic behind her. I couldn't stay. I had to go home, unquote. Not long after Nancy's neighbor tried in vain to get her to come home with her, Nancy would be abducted by the New Bedford Highway killer. She would never return home. 35-year-old Deborah DeMello was last seen in New Bedford on July 11th of 1988. It was around her body that the killer would strew Nancy Paeva's clothing around in hopes of creating a red herring for investigators. Deborah had escaped from the adult correctional institutions in Cranston, Rhode Island on June 18th of 1988 while she was on a work release program. Like the other victims, Deborah had struggled with her own drug addiction issues. According to DeMello's mother, who in an interview with WCVB-TV stated that her daughter had been plagued by drugs since she was a young teenager, quote, she was not a bad girl, she was a sick girl, unquote. DeMello was a mother and a wife. She had been serving a 21-month sentence in the Women's Correctional Institute in Cranston for loitering for the purpose of sex work in Providence, Rhode Island. 
She'd been on a work release program for about four months before she escaped. Deborah had found her way to the New Bedford Red Light District after escaping her work release. She would never find her way home to Rhode Island. Mary Rose Santos was a 26-year-old New Bedford resident. On July 16th of 1988, Mary disappeared. She had been married to her husband, Donald Santos, who was a disabled former fish house worker. On the night of July 16th, he noted that his wife Mary had dropped out of sight in the early morning hours. He began to look for his wife and was able to ascertain that she had last been seen leaving the quarter deck lounge, which was a dank downtown New Bedford bar. Donald would spend the remaining two weeks of July looking for his missing wife. Donald was said to have passed out handbills to passerbys, hoping they would lead to any information about the whereabouts of his missing wife. Mary's body was found on March 31st of 1989. Despite Donald's attempts to find her, the New Bedford Highway Killer found Mary first. Sandra Patello was a 24-year-old woman who was last seen in New Bedford around August 11th of 1988. She was close friends with Christine Montiero, the young 19-year-old victim whose body had never been found. In September, Sandra was reported as missing to the local police. Like all the victims before her, she had struggled with drug addiction and had also been thought to be a sex worker in order to pay for her drug addiction. Before she was murdered, Sandra had been working to get her high school equivalency diploma and had even thought about becoming a secretary when she completed schooling. Unfortunately, Sandra's addiction kept getting in the way of her goals and she kept finding herself back on the streets of New Bedford's red light district. Sandra had two young boys, one five and the other seven, and she always managed to make sure that they had clean clothes and food. Quote, it's hard to stay up all night doing drugs and be up cooking eggs for the kids in the morning, but she did it, unquote said Deborah Vitello, Sandra's sister. Quote, Sandy and I always had a ball, and that night was no different. She talked more about drugs and where she was getting them, but she was still the same old Sandy, unquote. The following week, Sandy disappeared. Her remains were found in April of 1989. Don Mendes was a 25-year-old woman who was last seen in New Bedford around September 4th of 1988. Dawn was one of 10 children, and she was survived by her nine siblings and her mother, Charlotte Mendez. Dawn was known to frequent Weld Square. She had been battling a cocaine addiction, which is what drew her into sex work in order to support her habit. Dawn's mother wanted the world to know that Dawn was far more than just a drug-dependent sex worker. When Dawn was in her third year of school, she ended up dropping out, but would return to schooling sometime later to earn her high school equivalency diploma. She was described as kind-hearted and loved her family dearly. As far down into her addiction as she had been, Dawn never once turned to stealing from her family in order to support her addiction. She also was a volunteer at the local Head Start program for children, which she received an honor from the program in 1987 for her work for them. Her mother was quoted in the Boston Globe as stating, quote, I'm not trying to make out that she was a saint. She wasn't. She had her faults, but she was a good, loving person, unquote. One of the problems that had led to Dawn's use of drugs occurred when she was only 17. She met a man who fathered her daughter. That man would also fracture both of Dawn's arms in April of 1988, just a few months before she was murdered. After the assault, Dawn lived with her family while her broken arms mended and was starting to turn her life around. Like many women who are victims of domestic abuse, after she recovered from the injuries, she was manipulated back home to her abuser which also led her to returning back into the life of sex work and drug addiction. Charlotte Mendez, Don's mother, was quoted in that same article as stating, quote, it seemed like he got a hold on her. He would come back into her life and she was gone again, unquote. 
Dawn would return to her abusive boyfriend in June of 1988. Her mother reported her missing in September when she didn't show up for her sister's baby's christening. Her body was found in late November of 1988. The victims of the New Bedford serial killer should never be forgotten, and they should never be blamed for what happened to them during the year of 1988. They were mothers, sisters, daughters, and friends. They left behind people who loved them dearly, and people who still lay awake at night, wondering just who the murderer was that took their beloved family member away. These 11 young women who had their whole lives ahead of them, they never got the chance to overcome their addictions and to reconnect with their loved ones. Their light was diminished by a murderer who stalked the streets of New Bedford all those years ago. The question still remains as to just who the New Bedford Highway Killer was. A profile was put together during the investigation into the personality traits that the New Bedford Highway Killer would more than likely exhibit. In a December issue of the Boston Globe, he was described as, quote, would have been outwardly normal but seething inside, unquote. The killer was thought to have had a history of violence against women. It was also thought that he more than likely came from the New Bedford area or was someone who had a very strong knowledge of the highway system and the red light district. The killer strangled his victims and would leave them with their legs spread open and pointed towards the highway. All the victims had brown hair, they were just around five feet tall, and all women were roughly in the same age group which ranged from their mid-twenties to mid-thirties. The killings only spanned from March of 1988 to September of 1988, which is a considerably short amount of time before they mysteriously stopped. By the time investigators even realized that they were dealing with a serial killer, the New Bedford Highway killer had moved on and was no longer active in that area. Investigators had interrogated and interviewed many men over the course of the investigation. Over time, they began to narrow down suspects in the serial killings. Before we dive into the proposed suspects put forth by the Massachusetts State Police during the active investigation into the New Bedford Highway killer, we just want to give a quick disclaimer. None of these suspects were ever tried in regards to the New Bedford Highway killings. Only one of the suspects ever had charges brought against him, and those were subsequently dropped a year later due to insufficient evidence. While none of the men have ever been convicted of the murders, none of them have ever been fully ruled out as well. We want to discuss the suspects and determine if they match any of the pathologies put forth regarding this case. The first suspect was Anthony DeGrazia, a 26-year-old construction worker and stonemason who was known to have had a very nasty temper. DeGrazia was also known to engage with sex workers and had been known to be violent towards women. In the summer of 91, DeGrazia was charged with attempted murder for choking an unnamed sex worker one night. He was identified by several sex workers during the course of the New Bedford Highway killings as being, quote, flat nose which was a nickname that many of the women who were engaged in sex work in the New Bedford Red Light District had given him. The reason being that his nose was wide and it was very close to his face. The woman would often warn other sex workers to stay far away from DeGrazia, as it was rumored that he had choked and even raped several of the other sex workers. DeGrazia was interviewed by police in April of 1989, where he did admit to choking the woman who he paid for sex, but he did deny killing anyone. It was one month later when a woman named Margaret Medeiros told a grand jury that, quote, he just lunged at my throat, and he tried to, you know, he was twisting my neck, 
he tried snapping my neck, unquote. DeGrazia was eventually charged with four counts of rape, six counts of assault and battery, and one count of assault with the intent to rape. His crimes were centered around the witness testimony of six sex workers from the New Bedford area, and the crimes occurred in the year following April of 1988. This was during the same time span as the murders of the New Bedford Highway killings. DeGrazia did eventually obtain a release on bail, where he then proceeded to hire a new lawyer. It would be less than a year later when he was yet again arrested for another attack, in which he allegedly tried strangling a sex worker in his lorry. DeGrazia was charged with the attempted murder and assault, but he committed suicide in July of 1991, before he would ever see the inside of a jail cell. Kenneth C. Ponty was the other man often associated as being a prime suspect in the case of the New Bedford Highway killings. Ponte was a 40-year-old attorney who did eventually find himself indicted for the murder of Rochelle Clifford Dapirala, who was one of the female victims found alongside the I-95 highway. Ponte was known to have had a history of drug addiction problems of his own, and he was acquainted with several of the victims of the New Bedford Highway killer. Ponte had represented both Mary and Nancy in court, and Nancy was known to have been the store manager of his video rental store. Don Mendez was also thought to have known Ponte. One evening, Don was spotted banging on the door of Ponte's house, where Rochelle Clifford had also been staying at some point during their tenure of knowing one another. Robin also had mentioned to her mother that she had been dating a lawyer, and it would turn out that this lawyer was Ponte. Ponte had been the deputy sheriff of Bristol County at one point in his life as well, Bristol County being the county that New Bedford was located in. Ponte had been known to invite sex workers into his home in order to partake in drugs with him. He had also been known to suffer from bouts of paranoia. In August of 1990, Ponte was charged with the murder of Rochelle Clifford, but one year later in 1991, those charges would be dropped due to only having circumstantial evidence tying him to her murder. In 2010, Ponte was found dead in his New Bedford home. According to investigators from Bristol County, there was no evidence of foul play, and they did not believe Ponte's death was suspicious. Ponte always maintained his innocence in relation to Rochelle Clifford's death, and denied any involvement with the serial murders that occurred during the year of 1988. Ponte was eventually disbarred from being a practicing lawyer. Three years previous to his death in 2007, state police dug up the yard from his former New Bedford home. It was never disclosed as to just what investigators had been looking for while digging up his former yard. Ponte had spent his remaining years being arrested over drug and shoplifting charges. The final suspect in the murders of 11 women over the course of 1988 was that of Daniel Tavares Jr. Tavares Jr. had been arrested and convicted of murdering his own mother by stabbing her over 15 times. While in prison, Tavares sent a letter to a prison staff member claiming responsibility for the New Bedford Highway killings. He was released from prison in 2007, only to arrive in Washington State and murder a young married couple a few months after his release. Tavares was brought back to Massachusetts in 2013 to face a murder indictment charge. Tavares was subsequently charged and convicted of the murder of a young woman named Gail Botello, 27 years previously. Her murder did occur in 1988, and she was murdered by Tavares over a drug dispute. Tavares buried Gail Botello under a tree at his then home. 
Her case remained a cold case for nearly 30 years until investigators were able to put together a case against Tavares after finding the remains of Gail Botello. Tavares is currently serving a life sentence for both the murder of the young couple in Washington State, as well as the murder of Gail Botello. Tavares has not been charged with any murders relating to the New Bedford Highway killings at this time. The New Bedford Highway killings are still being investigated, and we can all hope that perhaps one day soon, new evidence will come to light, allowing for the families of these victims to finally gain closure after 33 years of waiting for answers as to who murdered their beloved family members. Before we close out for good tonight, we just want to remind all of our listeners that if you or someone you love is a victim of domestic abuse, there is help out there you can contact. The National Domestic Violence Hotline, 800-799-7233. Again, that is 800-799-7233. If you or someone you love is struggling with drug addiction and you're looking for some support on your road to recovery, you can reach out to the National Drug Helpline, 1-844-289-0879. Again, that is 1-844-289-0879. Join us next week, nerdlings, for our breakdown on the case of the New Bedford serial killings. And you can come visit us at our website at crimetimenerds.com for any information on our social media links, as well as for access to our merch store, Thanks for listening. We will catch you next time, you crime-loving nerdlings.